in 2021, Vermont is still the second whitest state in the union. That's not by accident. And why are people over the decades not state? There's a reason there and we have to deal with that. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Just over a year ago, Burlington Mayor Moreau Weinberger appointed Taisha Green as Burlington's first Director of Racial Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Weinberger hailed her hiring as part of an effort in Vermont's largest city to begin, quote, breaking down the barriers of institutional racism and implicit bias, close quote. Green arrived just months before a national movement for racial justice took to the streets following the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Those protests also took place in cities and towns throughout Vermont. Taisha Green grew up in Minnesota, and she received a master's degree in public affairs from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Taisha Green, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start with the news of this week, which is the trial uh, going on of police officer Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis. I know you've been watching it. It's very disturbing, I think, for the whole country, certainly uh, for me and I'm sure for you, uh, the images. Just what is your reaction? This is where you grew up. It is where I grew up and where um, George Floyd was was murdered is the very corner that I grew up, spent most of my childhood. And as an adult, until I moved to Vermont, I lived about a mile away from 38th and Chicago. So um, that corner is very iconic in, in the Black neighbor, in, in the black community. Um, Cup Foods is very iconic in the Black community as well. So it has been very difficult. Uh, it was difficult last year but it's even more so difficult, again, reopening uh, those wounds and, and re-watching that horrific uh, video. And uh, so I've, I've, been, I've been watching, however, on the first day of the testimony of the, of the trial, uh, when they started to show the video, I had to turn it off because I couldn't, I couldn't take it. It was too traumatic. Hmm. What has struck you? What has stood out to you? Um, we're now on day three of the trial. What has stood out to you so far in the testimony that you've heard or, or read about? I believe that the prosecution is doing a very good job in showing that um, Chauvin had absolutely um, no remorse or no empathy um, for the situation as it unfolded. I really appreciated um, the paramedic who spoke yesterday. I can't remember her name, but she... Um, talked about how she had to, you know, physically move Chauvin off of, of, of um, Mr. Floyd's body. Um, I appreciated the um, dispatcher who saw the video and she thought something was wrong. She thought that the screen had frozen because they had been on top of Mr. Floyd for so long. And she called um, the superiors at the police department to, to report it. Uh, I appreciated the children who were in that space and and how they described what they saw. So I I think that the prosecution is doing a really good job of laying the groundwork here about the inappropriateness of and about this lynching, this broad daylight lynching that happened in South Minneapolis. How do you feel that 
the George Floyd murder and the protest movement that has followed from it has changed the country if it has changed the country? Well, I, I would hope that it changed the country, but we have to remember that there are many, many George Floyds um, before George Floyd. I think what's unique about George Floyd in Minneapolis is that we were all home in the middle of a pandemic watching television. The entire world was home. So the entire world got a chance to see and experience the fear of what it's like to be black in this country. And I think that was the difference, that everybody didn't have anything to do but to pay attention. Um, will it, I hope that it changes some things, but we also have to remember that, you know, every time something like this happens, when there's a, a murder of a black person, um, the enrollment, so to speak, of, of white supremacy organizations increases. So, we do see like an abundance of support for, for black lives, but then on the opposite side of that, what we're not talking about is the abundant support for white supremacy culture. And that was put on very graphic and violent display in January when pro-Trump supporters, many of them, uh, you know, using symbols of white supremacy, Confederate flags and the like, actually stormed the nation's capital. Did that surprise you? What was your reaction to seeing these, you know, kind of visceral and graphic images of white supremacy in our own nation's capital? I wasn't surprised. Um, I was saddened, but I wasn't surprised. Uh, I think that the way that that whole event um, unfolded before our eyes was how I see this country anyway. Um, is how I experience whiteness in this country, the privilege to be able to carry a Blue Lives Matter flag and distort that and beat the crap out of police officers with that same flag. The identity of of being white and feeling like you are owed something, feeling like there's no way that black people can pull one over on you, like what happened in Georgia. They're upset about Georgia. They're upset about the states that were red that turned blue because they know in those states why they turned blue. They know that there were black and indigenous and other people of color that showed up who normally don't show up to be a part of this democratic democratic process. But to them, my vote does not count. Only their vote counts. And that's how it's always been. And that was just a full display of what this country actually means. Let's... They don't feel like they did anything wrong. Trump doesn't feel like they did anything wrong. And that's something we have to contend with. Let's move uh, the shift the lens on to Burlington, where you're the director of racial equity, inclusion and belonging, and look at a few data points that highlight the disparities in how blacks and whites are treated by Burlington police. 
Um, mm -hmm. Black people were arrested four times more than white people by the Burlington police in 2019. Black people were the subjects in more than one-fifth of the cases where Burlington police used force over the course of seven years, despite comprising only 6% of the city's population. What is your take on what this says about the Burlington police and what it'll take to transform that department? Well, I think that systemic racism is everywhere. And because it's everywhere and because of the pervasiveness of it, we can't get away from it. I am sure there are good people in the Burlington Police Department. But one of the things that I want to emphasize is that being racist or having racist ideals or uh, following the status quo, so does not equate being a bad person. I'm sure that Hitler loved his family. I'm sure that David Duke loves his friends and family. But there's a distortion here. There's a belief system in this country that there is a racial hierarchy. And that belief system has been ingrained in us. And if you're not paying, even if you are paying attention, but there's no way that you can skirt around it because we're fed it, we breathe it, we eat it, we sleep in it. That is who we are as a country because this country was built on that ideal that there's a group of people that are, you know, more valued than others. And until we deal with that, we're going to see and continue to see these disparities. We have to deal with what we have been taught and what this country actually means. When you say American, do you envision a black person? Do you envision an Asian person? Do you envision a Latinx person? More often than not, you envision a group of white people. So all that to say, I, I, I do believe that there are probably good people in, more than likely there are good people in the Burlington Police, Police Department. However, they are abiding by rules of a system that says that my life does not matter. That's a problem. Last week, uh, Kyle Dodson, who Mayor Weinberger appointed as Director of Police Transformation, turned in a final report that seven days later revealed was significantly plagiarized. In the report, Dodson wrote, quote, the community didn't want transformation. Blacks and activists wanted revenge. What is your response to that? I take issue with the word revenge um, because to say that discredits the civil rights movement it discredits reconstruction after chattel slavery. It discredits all of the, the millions of, of Black Americans who were held in bondage and did not turn violent. It, it discredits all of that. And it's saying that we don't have a right to be angry, that we don't have a right to have equality and to, to have equitable outcomes, that we don't have that right 
because we don't have that right now, we must be seeking revenge. That, that's the only logical outcome to him. But it's an incorrect outcome because we've never turned violent as a people. We've never turned to revenge as a people. And I, I abhor it. I think it was, it was um, throwing the black community and the activist community under the bus. I think it shows that he doesn't understand his own community or the community here in Burlington to which he resides. Activism has always been the only way that things have changed in this country. And to say that activism equates to being vengeful is not right and is not okay. Several weeks ago, Mayor Weinberger removed you from overseeing a study to assess the Burlington Police Department and replaced you with a white man, the head of the Burlington Electric Department. The mayor said he wanted someone to, quote, be seen as neutral and not bringing pre-existing positions to the report, close quote. A day later, he said he reversed himself restored you to the position or put you in the position of overseeing this study and said, quote, this decision was wrong and reveals my own bias, close quote. Uh, Senator Keisha Rahm wrote about this incident that, quote, it's insulting to Green and to our community and can only leave us to presume that the decision gives comfort to those who are opposed to systemic change. Were you insulted by this? And is the mayor's decision a reflection of exactly the kind of racism that you were hired to combat? Uh, I was insulted by it. Um, the mayor has apologized to me privately and publicly. Um, I did not make a secret of how insulted I was. I made a, a conscious decision um, to not speak on this publicly um, because I feel that we have to uh, have a, a plan to move forward. Um, was it disheartening? Absolutely. Was I hurt? Absolutely. Is the community hurt right now? Absolutely. But right now, what I am focused on mostly is making sure that we have a transparent process in this police functional assessment and operational assessment and making sure that there are good racially equitable outcomes from it. That is my focus. And I wanna make sure that everybody is able to see every step of this process along the way. Can you talk about this idea of neutrality that somehow replacing an African-American person uh, with a white man makes it neutral. Because I think he was, I mean, Mayor Weinberger is a seasoned political operator. It was astonishing when he made the move. It was astonishing to me, but maybe not to you that this idea of white neutrality is something you're familiar with. Oh yeah, of course. I'm, I'm extremely familiar with it. Um, and the idea that, I mean, we see this play out everywhere. We can even take it back to the, the jury selection of the George Floyd trial. You know, if you, there were 75 black people who said exactly the same thing as white people, that they could put aside what they saw 
and be a fair juror, but they always got struck, struck out from being a part of this jury because they weren't seen as neutral. But if a white person comes in and that white person can say, oh yeah, I saw the tape, I thought it was disgusting, but I can put that to the side and I can really look at this for what it is. That to other white people seems like, well, they can be neutral. I think that Keisha Ram's article was brilliant. And I think that she hit the, the nail on the head um, with all of what she said. All of what she said is absolutely true. And that's what, that's what I've been hired here to combat. And so the, it is irony a little bit, but um, the mayor has reversed his, his decision and I am stepping into this, this role, the role that was already originally mine to begin with. And I will complete this functional and operational assessment with CNN. Uh, explain what comes of this uh, study of Burlington Police. It seems that we've been talking about transformation of the Burlington Police for a long time. And um, when are we actually going to see change? And what could that change look like? Well, we hope the CNA will let us know. Um, they have a game plan. I've mm. had two meetings with them so far, so we just are now getting started. And just, and I, just I to hope... be clear, this CNA is a consultant hired by the city of Burlington to yes. assess the police department. Yes. So CNA was chosen by the Joint Commission on Public Safety, so it had city councilors on it and police commissioners. And there was an RFP process. CNA was the highest scoring um, uh, RFP response. And so they were selected. Um, and so CNA, uh, we had, like I said, started working with them last week. Uh, I've had two meetings with them thus far. And I am just looking forward to them following the guidelines set forth in the RFP and the deliverables of that. And, and a big part of that is racial justice and, and police transformation and thinking creatively about how we get there because there's been so many reforms across the country that have failed. Um, I don't want this one to fail. I want this one to be good for, for the community and be good for the police department as well. I think that people think that racial equity is, is something that takes away from someone else or this is just for the black and brown community. No, racial equity and racial justice is for everybody, even white people. You've made the point that there's a difference between diversity and equity. Explain what you mean. Um, I don't tend to use the word diversity um, because diversity holds the standard of white supremacy culture in place. Because you have to ask the question, diverse from what? And the answer that you have is diverse from whiteness, different from whiteness. So that implies that whiteness is the standard. Diversity keeps that standard in place. I don't want there to be a standard. So what's normal for you is not normal for me. And the only way we can get to inclusion, the only way that we can get to belonging is to re remove the standard of whiteness. Last week, the city of Evanston, Illinois, became the first U.S. city to offer reparations to its African-American residents for past discrimination and the lingering effects of slavery. 
the city's going to be providing $400,000 to eligible households to use for home repairs or down payments on property. And these payments are reparations for anti-black housing policies that have existed in the city for decades. Um, in the national conversation that's followed from this, uh, Burlington is mentioned as one of the handful of American cities that is considering reparations. Talk about where this stands um, and, and what actions are being considered. Here in Burlington, we are dedicated to studying the effects of chattel slavery and studying um, if we were involved in any type of racial covenants, any type of um, uh, policy-based racism against Black people. Did we have slaves in Burlington? The answer that we found very quickly was yes. When were those slaves here? They were after the state of Vermont abolished slavery in Vermont, said that Vermont will not have slaves. They still had enslaved people right here in the city of Burlington. I think we are now, I, I read a recent report from one of the scholars that said there were about a total of 55 enslaved people in Burlington, in the city of Burlington after slavery was so-called abolished here in Vermont. So um, they're, they're studying the, the effects. We don't know. I, I think one of the questions that I always get is, is how much is this gonna cost? And right now it's only gonna cost us $50,000 to perform the study. However, um, I don't believe that the cities and municipalities should be paying financial payments to black people. I believe that they can't ever, you know, um, harness that debt. They can't, they don't have enough money. Even if you put all of the uh, state and local and uh, yeah, the state and local governments together, their budget is about $3 trillion. In order to rectify this, it's gonna cost about 15 trillion and that's being pretty conservative. And so this is a federal problem. The federal government is responsible for these payouts. But however, what the city of Burlington can do is put resources and financial resources to build up the community in what we call racial equity. Communities and, and cities and, and states, that's what they should focus on because they can never pay that debt. And while I think that um, what Everson did and, and others have done th thus far, those are admirable things to do, but it barely scratches the surface because once you pay that out, are you absolved of any of the harm that you have caused to the black community? No, you're not. So what you're doing is racial equity. You're not doing reparations. Reparations goes way deeper than that. Um, a year into your job as the director of uh, the Racial Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging office in Burlington, where do you see systemic racism most apparent in Vermont? And what has surprised you in your first year of being in this job and in living in Vermont? I see systemic racism everywhere. But I've been studying what systemic racism looks like as well for a while. And as a, a black person 
I didn't have the language to what I was seeing and calling it systemic racism as like a 16 year old or a 12 year old or even a 25 year old. I didn't have the language to describe what it was I was seeing and experiencing in various cities in this country. Um, when I first was leaving to come here from Minneapolis, my friend said, you know, you're gonna love Vermont, it's so progressive. It's like, oh, okay. So I think what surprised me the most is how unprogressive Vermont actually is. I think what surprises me the most is how racist Vermont is. And I wasn't prepared for it um, because I came in thinking, I came in with a very different vision of what Vermont was. But when you think about it logically, in 2021, Vermont is still the second whitest state in the union. That's not by accident. The Underground Railroad, for order for those enslaved people to get to Montreal, they had to come through Vermont. Why didn't they stay? Why didn't they stay? And why have people over the decades not stayed? There's a reason there. And we have to deal with that. And what because is Vermont that? Is, is like systemic racism, individual racism, institutional racism. Vermont is beautiful. My God, like you look outside and you feel like it's fake. It can't be real because it's just that beautiful. The landscape is just that beautiful. Anybody would love to look outside and see that every day. However, at what cost? as a black person or a Latinx person, at what cost for you to be able to see beauty when you deal with excruciating emotion, pain and gaslighting and microaggressions and just flat out racism. For people who are listening, who you wish could stand in your shoes for an hour or a day, what would they see that they perhaps don't see as a white Vermonter? they can stand in my shoes, what would they see? I think as a white person, you would, if you stood in my shoes for one day, you would think that you were absolutely crazy because that's how I feel. I don't think they feel any different than what I feel. It's like you have to question your own reality constantly. When you say, oh, I don't like the way that that felt. That felt a little, you know, a little bias that felt a little microaggression like for me. And to have someone explain away how much it wasn't what you thought it was and have you think like, okay, so what I'm feeling in my body can't be true because you white person are telling me that that's not what I'm feeling. I think that would be the most, that would be what a white person will most experience is that feeling like, am I crazy? Am I not really feeling what I'm feeling? And did I not really see what I just saw? Finally, um, Taisha, you just had your COVID shot today, <laughs> about a half hour before you came on to this uh, broadcast. Um, there's been a huge disparity in every dimension of COVID on its impact on the BIPOC community and now on the willingness of BIPOC Vermonters uh, 
to get the shot. So talk about your own experience and your own hesitancy about getting this vaccine. Yeah. So vaccines, I mean, the medical community and BIPOC people haven't really uh, gotten along, so to speak. Um, there, there, There's a different way that I'm treated when I go to the doctor than my friend, my white friend Stacy, would be treated when she goes to the doctor. Um, and it's been like that pre-COVID. That's been there. Those racial disparities were there before COVID hit. Um, there's a history there of experiments being done on Black people, in particular, um, Black and Indigenous people, if you look at eugenics as well. Um, and so my hesitancy was going off of my own experience, not just historical experience, but my own experience going into doctor's offices and the way that I'm treated when I'm there. Um, and I wanted to wait for a little while to see what happened to the white people. It's like, this is an experimental drug. I don't know. Let's let the white people go first and see what happens. Um, and I did also have a feeling of if they gave it to us, will they give us something different than they give the white people? And, and that is something I had to you know get over as well. But as I was sitting there today, after making the decision, after doc I said, once Dr. Fauci gets it, I'm getting it. Then I went back and said, once I see Michelle Obama get it, she has to be on camera. I have to see her getting it. I'm getting it. And when I saw those two things, um, I decided that, that I needed to get the vaccine. And so I went and I got it today. And I was terrified. I was petrified. I was so scared. I was panicked the entire time because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if I was going to get sick. I didn't know if I was going to have allergic reaction. I started questioning the research. I started questioning the science and saying, is, are they just experimenting on us? And we all are really just going to die from COVID and they just want to like make us feel like that we're not going to die. I had all of these questions in my head. And I think a lot of it was political. A lot of it was social, social and a lot of it was historical context. Um, and I was still a, a little bit coming down from that panic when I got on this call with you. So um, I'm feeling much better. I'm much more relieved. My arm hurts a little bit, but um, I do think that is important. I have said this publicly and to my family and to my friends. I think it's important that we all get this vaccine because that's the only way we're going to get rid of this monster that has held us in captivity for over a year now. Okay, well, Taisha Green, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. Taisha Green is the first Director of Racial Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging in the City of Burlington. <laughs>